Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. From the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory, the show that explains the history behind today's headlines. I'm Joanne Freeman. I'm Ed Ayers. I'm Nathan Connolly. And I'm Brian Ballow. Brian, Joanne, Ed, and I are all historians, and each week we take a story in the news and look at it across American history. Today, we'll feature some of the stories we've done over the past year that were inspired by the news. Actually, let's start with fake news. Because guess what? It's been around for a heck of a long time. Here's just one example. In August of 1835, the New York Sun newspaper broke an astonishing story. Life had been discovered on the moon. This is writer Matthew Goodman. Including uh, sheep and hairy bison. And uh, as these articles went along, the creatures that were discovered became ever stranger and more remarkable. Uh, So it turns out that unicorns were discovered on the moon and biped beavers, beavers who walk on their hind legs and had discovered the secret of fire. And uh, most remarkable of all, kind of the crowning uh, glory of the series, were these lunar man bats, four foot tall man bat, <laughs> uh, who talked and flew and uh, built temples and did art and uh, apparently fornicated in public, although that mm. was uh, something the sun didn't go into too many details about. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I just, I just, I want to say the word man bat. I mean, all by itself, (laughs) all all by itself, the word man bat is not something I've ever uttered before, and um, it's a great word. I can see how it would be good press. Now, you've probably figured out by now that this story contains what might be called alternative facts. In other words, they were made up and made to look like a real news story, you know, fake news. And in the past year, fake news has been, well, all over the news. In this program, we try not to talk about the president's fake news jabs any more than necessary. They're clearly designed to undermine the reporting of this outlet and others that the president simply doesn't like, no matter how many sources or facts. Can you give us a question? Don't be rude. She's asking a question. Don't be rude. Can you give us a question? Don't be rude. I'm not going to give you a question. You are fake news. We are here to protest CNN and their fake news. They have it here because I am very much against all this fake news because it, I believe it is generating a tremendous amount of animosity. The epidemic of malicious fake news and false propaganda that flooded social media over the past year, it's now clear that so-called fake news can have real-world consequences. In the 19th century, newspaper editors actively encouraged reporters to spice up their stories with phony facts to boost circulation. But as it turns out, fabricated stories go back to the very beginning of the Republic. I'm looking at you, Joanne. Didn't a certain founder publish one of the country's first fake news stories? Yes. One of my my founding father pals, Benjamin Franklin, um, in the period just before they were going to be negotiating the treaty with Britain to end the American Revolution, Franklin wanted to influence the negotiations. So he actually made up 
a fake supplement to a real newspaper. He made it look very real. And in it, he created this story about how these Native Americans who were allied with the British um, had created a, a sort of gift to give to the king that included sacks of scalps of American colonists. And it wasn't even just like grown people scalps. It was women's scalps and children's scalps and infant scalps. And so Franklin basically just wanted the British to feel really guilty for what they and their Native American allies had done, the atrocities that they'd committed during the war. Ugh. And ba- hold he on. Ba- this bags out. of yeah. scalps? <laughs> Bags of scalps, eight bags of scalps even. You know, Frank, Franklin thought big. Okay. Um, and he was hoping for that very reason, you just did what I'm sure he wanted the British to do, which was go, oh, my gosh, really? Right. That happened in America. And maybe the peace negotiations would be more favorable towards America. Did that work? Well, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> we are a I separate nation, so I guess it okay. works. It's true. Well, and, and what did work, though, was that that story got reprinted. It got printed in mm. London newspapers. Uh. It got printed throughout the colonies or actually now states. So, I mean, if his point was partly to influence public opinion, I suppose you could say, yeah, he did, because that, that story spread all over the place. That could even be the definition of fake news. People believe it enough to spread it around. Opioid addiction has become a major public health crisis. The number of fatal overdoses has quadrupled since 1999. More people are dying now from drug overdoses than from car crashes and gun homicides combined. This is a public health epidemic, but it is completely man-made. Opioid addiction is now officially an epidemic in Virginia. How did it get so bad so quickly? How can we get the doctors and hospitals to stop over-prescribing these addictive drugs? Last May, we produced an episode called The Habit, looking at the history of opioid use in America. This family of narcotics includes oxycodone and fentanyl, along with their 19th century antecedents, laudanum, morphine, and codeine. They're all natural or synthetic derivatives of opium. Up until the early 20th century, medical opium was legal in the United States and easy to get. Here's historian David Courtright. People could buy, in many places, they could, they could buy opium just over the counter. Pharmacists and drugstores sold it in pills and powders. It was also dissolved into syrups and patent medicines. In an age with few effective medications, opium was pretty much used to treat all kinds of aches and ailments. In 1859, Harper's Weekly called it the poor child's nurse. It was used to soothe teething babies or a child's hacking cough. It also took the edge off migraines and menstrual cramps. It relieved insomnia and what was then called melancholy. Courtright says there was a sudden spike in opiate use after the Civil War. Per capita use tripled between the 1870s and 1890s. It was, in fact, the country's first medical addiction crisis. And it's easy to find the cause. Well, in two words, morphine injection. Morphine was one of the first opiates. When injected into a patient's bloodstream, it was much more powerful than opium pills or powders. And thanks to the spread of syringes, morphine soon flowed into wide use. In 1860, most American physicians did not have a hypodermic syringe or know how to use it. By 1880, virtually all of them did. That's the difference. 
and they used it as a kind of magic wand for the treatment of pain. There are many, many cases where there wasn't much they could do to get at the underlying cause of the disease, but here at last was something that would alleviate the pain, bring sleep, um, soothe the patient, and they used it. Now, for as long as Americans have been using opiates, there had always been some patients who became addicted. And Nathan, there are certainly a lot of people in pain in the 19th century. I know that during the Civil War, Army doctors passed out opium and morphine pills to wounded soldiers so that after the war, many veterans were addicted, so much so that opiate addiction was sometimes called the Army disease. That's right, Ed. A lot of people were in pain. Courtright says in the years after the war, soldiers weren't the only ones who struggled with morphine addiction. By the 1870s and 1880s, the vast majority, say 60-70% of addicts in the United States reported by pharmacists and physicians were female. Female. Right. Women were doctors' best customers. The, the mm. majority of patients doctors saw in the late 19th century were female, and they suffered from a set of um, conditions such as dysmenorrhea or um, painful um, childbirth that men did not experience. So there, to say it simply, there were more ways to become addicted if you were female. And were they using the word addiction in the medical publications or in the kind of common language about these kinds of concerns? No, that's that's actually a very interesting question. Uh, trying to figure out the terminology of addiction in the 19th century is like trying to nail jelly to the wall. <laughs> morphine eating, morphine-ism, okay. habit was extremely common. So one often reads of the opium habit or the morphine habit. Addiction does not really become common until the 1910s and 1920s. So you'll, you'll pick up a medical journal in, say, 1925, and it's about addiction. Uh, you pick up one in 1875, and it's about the opium habit or the morphine habit. Now, I have to imagine that, that race also had something to do in determining who, who the typical addict might be when it, when it concerned opiates. Is that fair to say? It's fair to say if you can join race and economics. Mm-hmm. If you put the question this way, which racial group in the United States in 1900 had the lowest rate of narcotic addiction? The answer is African-Americans. Mm-hmm. Uh, the majority of African-Americans were poor, and they didn't have access to regular medical care in, in many mm-hmm. cases. And while that may not have been good for them in some respects, it did ironically confer a certain immunity against medical addiction. Mm -hmm. Uh, Narcotic addiction was primarily a white and a Chinese problem. Chinese because, of course, many of the indentured uh, Chinese laborers were opium smokers. Right. So you've painted a pretty stark picture here where you have the arrival of kind of hypodermic applications of opium, with white women, it sounds like, being the predominant abusers of the medication by the time you get to the 1870s and 1880s. Well, I wouldn't necessarily say abusers. I mean, remember, these these are people who are basically sick. They have chronic conditions of one kind or another. They didn't all become addicted. Some of them simply took opiates for a brief period of time and then got better and quit taking the drug and they were fine. Others continued taking the drug, and they, they became addicts. To, to apply the word abuse to that, um, th- these were people who wandered into a trap. Did these doctors notice that some of their patients had become dependent on morphine? Uh, yes. 
you can infer that from complaints that you read in medical journals. Mm -hmm. So doctors were starting to wake up to the fact that they had a problem. So you'll, you'll come across articles which say, don't ever leave the hypodermic syringe with the patient. Mm. Uh, try to disguise the medication so that should a person have surgery or, or have some other kind of long-term recovery, they might become physically dependent on a narcotic. But if they don't connect the withdrawal symptoms to the medicine, as, as you might call it, mm -hmm. um, then they're, they're probably not going to continue. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, you had mentioned that there was a danger if patients became aware that it was the, the morphine on its own that was providing the relief and they might find other ways of getting access to the drug. Was there a, a kind of underground economy, even, even in kind of medical grade morphine or opium at this time? Uh, no, not really. Uh, okay. Not for the medical patients. So, so, yes, there is an underground traffic in uh, drugs like opium that has been prepared for smoking. Mm -hmm. So if, if that was your, your opiate of choice, then yes, there were criminal networks and black markets and, and so on. But if you're a 45-year-old white woman who realizes that, that you have a problem, then what you're going to do is you're going to seek out an accommodating pharmacist or physician. There are plenty of people who will be willing to provide you with the drug because the truth is that there's no steadier customer than an addict. Mm -hmm. You might have an old prescription which a pharmacist will sort of wink and nod and continue to, to <laughs> honor that old prescription even though right. it's tattered and it's, it's falling to pieces and it's yellow with age, but they'll go ahead and continue to fill the prescription. So as a rule, medical addicts in the 1870s and 1890s did not yet have to resort to the black market. And it's very interesting what does not happen. In the late 19th century, no one is particularly interested in throwing Civil War veterans or sick old ladies into prison. Right. There's no drug war. Um, Chinese opium smokers and members of the white underworld, such as gamblers and prostitutes, who also took up the practice of, of smoking opium in the, at the very end of the 1860s and into the 1870s. Those people were worthy of contempt. Huh. Now, there's a law that's passed by Congress in 1909, the Opium Exclusion Act. Was that the law that ultimately helped to rein in some opium use? Some opium use, yes. That law was very specifically designed to prohibit the importation of opium that had been prepared for smoking, for the opium pipe. It did not apply to medicinal opium imports, most of which were converted into morphine, and it certainly didn't have anything to do with the medical prescription of morphine. Hmm. Uh, however, the situation had changed by 1909, and we do okay. know the doctors were writing fewer prescriptions Why? for opium and morphine. Oh, because they'd learned their lesson. Uh, <laughs> the, the, hey, it's, it, it's good to know that people learn their lessons. Um, <laughs> Indeed. This is a very common thing with medications. Um, mm. Doctors tend to be enthusiastic about new drugs, and sometimes these new drugs are overused. For example, Valium in the 1970s, right. or in our own time, prescription opioids, which is right. part of the reason we have this crisis has come back. But 
it starts in the journals, and then by the 1890s, medical students are being warned. Okay. I remember reading uh, one source where a doctor is complaining that medical students today have been so thoroughly warned about the uh, dangers of narcotic administration that patients are suffering the agonies of hell uh, for want of an eighth of a grain of morphine. Mm. You know, this this critic thought the pendulum had actually swung too far in the other right. direction, that, right. that too many doctors had become wary. Uh, word was out in the medical profession, and the newer generations of physicians were more circumspect in their prescribing. Not only that, but they had other things that they could prescribe. I mean, the most obvious ex- example is aspirin, right. which became commercially available in 1899. So if somebody shows up with aches and pains, rather than give them laudanum or opium or even morphine, uh, prescribe aspirin. Are there any lessons we can draw from the 19th century opioid crisis that might inform how we approach the current crisis? Well, the most obvious lesson is that uh, physicians are educable. They were able to bring peer pressure to bear. If one looks at the medical literature, this, this is years before the federal government gets around to passing legislation. There is a kind of self-criticism and internal indictment that's going on. Uh, doctors who shoot first and ask questions later are lazy, they're incompetent, <laughs> they're behind the times. Right. They're bad doctors. Bad doctors can kill you. And other mm-hmm. doctors are saying that in the uh, medical literature of the late 19th century. And so the, there's a kind of shaming that's going on In a lot of ways, it's a remarkable window back into a period that might not be as different as we'd like to let on. That's absolutely right. And it's also the case that not everyone who uses these drugs necessarily gets into trouble. I mean, there there are lots of folks who are pain patients Mm. who take hydrocodone or oxycodone. They don't doctor shop. They, They follow the directions. They don't get into trouble. And they significantly improve their lives. It's not the case that everyone necessarily goes off the rails, which is one of the things that makes this problem so difficult. People right. people are different. Their social circumstances are different. Their doses are different. Their underlying medical conditions are different. Right. So you're going to get different outcomes. That's the way the world is. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. we do know, unfortunately, we do know that a significant minority of people who are prescribed powerful prescription opioids do develop serious problems. That was the case in the late 19th century. It is the case, unfortunately, in the early 21st century as well. David Courtright is a historian at the University of North Florida and author of Dark Paradise, A History of Opiate Addiction in America. One of our most popular episodes this year was about myths in American history. We called it Too Good to Be True. Listener Natanya Pope Sohel in Chicago wondered about someone who looms large in American folklore. He's inspired countless stories, poems, and especially ballads for more than a century. The name of this song is John Henry. This is a recording of a man named Harold B. Hazelhurst. It was made in 1939 by the Works Progress Administration. Hazelhurst had learned the John Henry song when he was a teenager working on the Florida Railroad. 
Uh, see, the fellows from different railroads would come and work on this track with us, and each fellow, perhaps he'd have a new verse that he'd oh. add to this song. Well, good. Well, now, you, let's hear the way, the way you remember it. When they brought John Henry to this country, they brought him through by land. The people came from far and near just to see a steel-driving man. Just to see a steel-driving man. John Henry told his captain that a man ain't nothing but a man. Before I let this hammer I do me, I'll die with the handle in my hand. John Henry, I'll die with the hammer in my hand. John Henry had a little woman... That song lays down the legend of John Henry, the steel-driving man who raced against a modern steam drill to carve out a railroad tunnel. He won, but then immediately collapsed and died. It's a classic story of man versus machine. I'm just going to admit it right up top. I didn't know much more about John Henry than what I'd heard in the songs. So after getting in touch with Natanya, we called a historian at the University of Georgia named Scott Reynolds Nelson. He's an expert in all things John Henry. And it turns out that the real story of John Henry is more disturbing and less uplifting than the myth. We'll start with Natanya's first question. So my first question is, was he an actual person? Yes, he was. He was uh, five feet, one and a quarter inches tall. He was born I in— I this guy was a giant. <laughs> uh, the, a quarter, I'm sure he insisted on. Uh, so he was a very small man, but that's what you needed to uh, build a tunnel. To make a tunnel in the 1860s and 1870s, you needed a hammer man who was small. The arc of his swing had to be small enough so that he could go deep into that tunnel. Hey, Natanya, can I squeeze a question in here? Of course. It's your show. So was he and uh, the guys he were working with, were they actually racing against another team that was using a steam drill? Yes, that would have been around September or October of 1871, according to the construction reports. Uh, the steam drills were there. They were being used to try to drill um, these little holes that for the explosives. But there are actual reports at the time saying that, that the drillers are drilling alongside the steam drills and the steam drills are failing. Okay, let me check in with Natanya. Are you believing yeah. this so far, Natanya? <laughs> I am. I do find it believable. But I'm wondering, was he, in the context of the Ava DuVernay documentary 13th, yeah. about the constitutional loophole that allows for enslavement of prisoners, was John Henry caught up in one of the first waves, waves of post-Civil War mass incarceration of African-American men? Uh, yes, he was. Um, what happened? Uh, this is this is very early in 1865. Andrew Johnson is president. He allows the Virginia state to kind of reconstitute itself as a state, and they they take all of these minor misdemeanors and turn them into felonies. And what you see is mass incarceration of African American, mostly men, and three fourths of the men in the Virginia penitentiary in 1864 are white. By 1869, uh, 80% of the men in the Virginia penitentiary are black. That's really remarkable. Yeah. You get basically a labor force that is a critical labor force that allows Virginia, um, the Virginia railroads to, to penetrate uh, the mountains and connect to western Virginia. Uh, they tried to use miners, black and white miners, to do this work, but they went on strike uh, around 1870. said there was bad air in the mountain, and that's when they brought in convicts to finish the work. John Henry and uh, about 100 to 200 other folks were shipped up to do the, the final stages of this construction work. 
Right. What led you to believe that John Henry was actually a real person, Scott? I didn't think he was a real person. I thought he was I thought he was a legend and I was listening to a version of the song that said uh, looking at a picture of the Virginia Penitentiary and the song says they took John Henry to the White House and buried him in the sand. Every locomotive comes roaring by says there lies a steel driving man. And next to the Virginia Penitentiary buried in layers of sand in 1995 they found 200 bodies and they were all mostly black men between the ages of 18 and 25. So using that, I got access to the Virginia Penitentiary records. They show John Henry being arrested for a crime that he probably didn't commit. He's listed as stealing goods worth uh, $200 from a grocery store, but you look at the inventory of the grocery store, there's nothing worth $200. He finally ends up in the Virginia Penitentiary in 1868, but he'll die uh, by 1871 uh, working on the tunnels at the Lewis Tunnel right at the edge of um, the border between Virginia and West Virginia on the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad. So what is it about this story, Scott, that made it so compelling to become a myth? I mean, what makes for a myth? Uh, it's, a, it's a good question. I think part of it is that a steam drill in 1871 was a terribly uh, difficult instrument. It was really bulky. It was really slow. The power was transmitted pneumatically. Um, any two of us, you and I, Brian, could have defeated a steam drill in 1871. But by 1880, when the song starts to be transmitted, a steam drills are so powerful and so they work so well that no human could defeat a steam drill. And so that's when it becomes, it enters a level of myth. But what killed most of the prisoners on the uh, work site was not exactly the steam drill. It was, it was actually the explosives that were creating this rock dust. People inhaled it, um, little tiny bits of crystalline rock. They cut up your lungs, and you basically your lungs fill up with fluid and you die. And this is how he and most of the other workers who were doing this construction died, this rock dust from a very, very hard rock. Um, people inhale it, and it kills them. Right. So, Natanya, should we let this guy keep going? I mean, he's convinced me so far. You got any more for him? I have just one more question. Mm -hmm. So, John Henry is considered a hero in American folklore, and I believe that mm. he's a hero. Um, but we don't usually consider people in the prison system as heroes. So, I'm wondering, is there a bit of revisionist history at play, or is his story part of the natural evolution of folklore that tends to leave out the sticky parts as time mm, passes? Mm, mm, that's a great question. I think it is. A, it's a, a part of it is, a, is this evolution of the sticky parts. I think one of the th amazing things about African-American art and literature and music is that it can take the most terrible crimes and turn them into the most beautiful literature and music that we have. And so this is a way, the story of John Henry is really a story about a terrible crime. It's about men who are buried unremembered, without gravestones, in the Virginia penitentiary, forgotten. And the song is really about saying, here are the men. They're buried at the White House. So it's a story that, that takes a terrible crime, but over time, as men and women carry the song forward and convert it and change it, they turn it into this beautiful song. It goes from a dirge to really the beginnings of blues and uh, what we now call rock and roll. Natanya, you made the mistake of telling me something about yourself while we were waiting for Scott. Mm -hmm. You're in law school? Yes, I am. Is that what piqued your interest in this? Mm -hmm. um, actually, no. I also homeschool my kids, and we got to the unit on folk tales. Mm. And so I was trying to find something that 
I thought that they could relate to. What's your takeaway? What are you going to, how old are your kids? My youngest is nine. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess my takeaway is that history is just interconnected, you know, especially mm. with folk tales. It's not always what we see. There's always a backstory. There's always an undercurrent. You know how you have subjects that you constantly think about, like throughout time, you know, like you come back to them, you think about certain things. John Henry has always been that for me. And I feel like a lot of my questions about who he was and why he was um, and why he is such a, a huge figure in folklore has been answered. And I'm, I'm really glad that we had this conversation. Thanks to our listener, Natanya Pope-Soho, for her questions. Thanks also to Scott Reynolds-Nelson for helping us answer them. He's an historian at the University of Georgia and author of Steel Driving Man, John Henry, The Untold Story of an American Legend. Last August, a group of neo-Nazis and white supremacists held what they called a Unite the Right rally here in Charlottesville, Virginia. Some of them brandished automatic weapons and terrorized African-American residents. A young woman was murdered during the protest, and two police officers also died. The rally organizers said they were protesting the city's attempts to remove its statue of Confederate General Robert E. Lee. The Lee statue is in a city park in downtown Charlottesville, about a block away from Congregation Beth Israel. The synagogue's president, Alan Zimmerman, came to our studio to share a letter he wrote about his experience that day. We included it in the August 18th episode of Backstory, Charlottesville, Our Town, Our Country. On Saturday morning, I stood outside our synagogue, one block away from Emancipation Park. With the armed security guard we hired after the police department refused to provide us with an officer during morning services. Even the police department's limited promise of an observer near our building was not kept. And note, we did not ask for protection for our property, only for our people as they worshipped. Forty congregants were inside. Here's what I witnessed during that time. For half an hour, Three men dressed in fatigues and armed with semi-automatic rifles stood across the street from the temple. Had they tried to enter, I don't know what I could have done to stop them, but I couldn't take my eyes off of them either. Perhaps the presence of our armed guard deterred them. Perhaps their presence was just a coincidence, and I'm paranoid. I don't know. Several times, parades of Nazis passed our building, shouting, There's the synagogue, followed by chants of Sieg Heil, and other anti-Semitic language. Some carried flags with swastikas and other Nazi symbols. A guy in a white polo shirt walked by the synagogue a few times, arousing suspicion. Was he casing the building or trying to build up courage to commit a crime? We didn't know. Later, I noticed that the man accused in the automobile terror attack wore the same polo shirt as the man who kept walking by our synagogue. Apparently, it's the uniform of a white supremacist group. Even now, that gives me a chill. When services ended, my heart broke as I advised congregants that it would be safer to leave the temple through the back entrance rather than through the front, 
and to please go in groups. This is 2017 in the United States of America. Later that day, I arrived on the scene shortly after the car plowed into peaceful protesters. It was a horrific and bloody scene. Soon, we learned that Nazi websites had posted a call to burn our synagogue. I sat with one of our rabbis and wondered whether we should go back to the temple to protect the building. What could I do if I were there? Fortunately, it was just talk. But we had already deemed such an attack within the realm of possibilities, taking the precautionary step of removing our Torahs, including a Holocaust scroll, our most prized possession from the premises. Again, this is America in 2017. Alan Zimmerman is the president of Congregation Beth Israel in Charlottesville. Finally, we want to go back to one of our first episodes from this year, Worlds Apart, about the urban-rural divide in America. We close that episode with a map of voting results from the 2016 election. The middle of the map is a sea of red rural voters, sprinkled with small islands of blue voters. The blue dots represent voters in America's metropolitan areas. Those blue islands, joined with coastal cities, helped Hillary Clinton win the popular vote. But that sea of red gave Donald Trump more electoral votes and won him the election. Many liberal commentators, including MSNBC's Lawrence O'Donnell, complained about the unfairness of the Electoral College. Why do we do this Electoral College thing? Making those rural votes 20 times more powerful than urban votes. But there's another thing that can tilt the scales in favor of white rural voters. Gerrymandering. That's when the political parties carve electoral districts that favor their own party. In October, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in a case that challenges the constitutionality of partisan gerrymandering. The Electoral College and gerrymandering are well-recognized features of our electoral system. But 50 years ago, rural voters enjoyed a political advantage over urban voters because of something else, malapportionment. That's when certain residents have more political power than their numbers would suggest. And we could point to almost any state in the nation by the mid-20th century. Virtually every state in the United States was malapportioned. This is historian Doug Smith. He says malapportionment emerged from the belief that rural voters somehow were just better than urban voters. That attitude was captured perfectly by a delegate to New York State's Constitutional Convention in 1894. I say without fear of contradiction that the average citizen in the rural district is superior intelligence, superior in morality, superior in self-government to the average citizen in the great cities. We could certainly see this as an extreme manifestation of it, but that was a, a mindset or an attitude that was quite prevalent in many citizens of rural and small-town America who saw the, the cities growing rapidly. It's immigration, people of uh, darker skin colors, different religions are flooding the United States. Corporations are, are growing by leaps and bounds. Factories, it's a whole different way of life. And on many different levels, it, it can be unsettling. Smith says even though malapportionment violated the principle of one person, one vote, it was actually perfectly legal. 
The Constitution only requires that representation in the House of Representatives be based upon the census, but the Constitution doesn't specifically say anything about state legislatures. So in California, for instance, where I live, you had a state Senate, uh, which was set up in such a way that residents of Los Angeles County, 6 million people had one state senator, and 14,000 residents of three rural counties up in the eastern side of the Sierra Mountains also had one state senator. So literally, if you were a voter in, in the rural eastern Sierra, you would have essentially 450 times the amount of political power as a resident of Los Angeles County in voting for the state Senate. Let me ask you, Doug, you know we're talking today about the urban-rural divide. Is one of the reasons that this notion that rural people are good people and honest people prevailed for so long, the fact that they had a louder voice in pretty prominent places like state legislators? Well, I think that for a long time, they had the power because they had the numbers. It was a rural country. It was a rural country. And, and you know, we, we often talk about how it's the 1920 census that showed for the first time that a majority of Americans lived in urban areas. But at the time, you know, urban area, and that was defined as 2,500 people or more. I don't think a lot of us today would think of a, a community of three <laughs> or 5,000 people as urban. You know, the point being that for a long time, they did have the numbers and they did have the political power. And as, you know, as a, as a political historian, to me, at the end of the day, what malapportionment it really is about is about political power. And it's about maintaining it, holding on to it, doing everything you can to try to, to maximize it. Were there other interests that came to support malapportionment? Well, I think certainly over time, business groups, chambers of commerce, manufacturing associations, all of those sorts of folks very much supported malapportionment insofar as it left control of the legislature in rural and small-town folks who were seen as being more conservative on issues um, such as, you know, labor laws, taxation, et cetera, et cetera. So even though those businesses largely were located in urban areas— Absolutely. —they wanted a pliant, rural-dominated legislature. Absolutely. What are some examples of the consequences of malapportionment? So if you think about for a minute, the states that were most malapportioned, you essentially were in a, created a situation where a minority of, of residents, as few in some cases as, as 12 to 20 percent, could actually control the majority of a legislative body. And so when you have that sort of form of minority control, it means that you can essentially veto almost any uh, measure put forward before the legislature. So, for instance, in Michigan, there was constant efforts at sort of uh, laws that would be seen as more favorable to workers, labor law, that business interests fought, or fair housing So these laws. would be laws, for instance, on safety regulation. Safety, workplace. Or overtime, minimum wage, Minimum perhaps. wage. I mean, literally anything, any issue that comes before a state legislature or before the House of Representatives in the case of Congress is affected. Uh, in California, there's issues of, you know, water rights and whatnot that are that are affected. And in, in we haven't talked at all about the role that, that malapportionment plays in the perpetuation of segregation in Jim Crow. But certainly, you know, in, in Virginia, when Virginia passed its massive resistance laws. Massive it, resistance to uh, ensure that the schools were not integrated. Correct. Um, so when those laws were, were passed, you know, the, it's the rural areas of Virginia that were most conservative, most committed to maintaining segregation, that were overrepresented in Richmond as opposed to, you know, members of the legislature from Norfolk and Hampton Roads or Northern Virginia who were underrepresented. Doug, I have a funny feeling the courts are going to break this logjam. 
Absolutely. And it, the issue really does begin to metastasize almost in the, in the post-World War II period as urban areas continue to grow by leaps and bounds and urban officials uh, become increasingly frustrated with the, you know, the inability to, to get adequate funding from the state legislature, whether it's for education or for roads or et cetera, et cetera. In November of 1960, the Supreme Court agrees to hear a case of Baker v. Carr, which comes out of Tennessee. The court was divided four to four. Potter Stewart, who was one of the newer justices, couldn't make up his mind and asked for it to be put over for re-argument. It was re-argued in October of 1961. It ultimately was a six to two decision, but Baker v. Carr only went so far as to say that the federal courts may consider whether or not malapportionment violates the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. It did not set a standard. It did not address the specifics, but it did open the floodgates to a raft of lawsuits. And then finally, two years later, in June of 1964, the, the court announced its decision and in, in the principle of one person, one vote must govern apportionment of all state legislative bodies. Yeah. Doug, I could read about malapportionment all day, but, you know, most people would say this is, you know, boring. Did, did people <laughs> actually care about this? Oh, absolutely. And when the Supreme Court handed down its decisions in June of 1964 requiring population equality in both branches of the legislature. This was headlines in every newspaper, every news show, and it remained in the national consciousness for five years as states did begin to reapportion under court order. And eventually, by the by the late 1960s, uh, virtually every legislative body in the United States was based on equal population. And does malapportionment still exist? Literal malapportionment in terms of the way it existed prior does not. One thing that has happened uh, in the 50 years since, is that legislative bodies within a state or congressional districts within a state do have the same or rel- almost the same number of people, you know, the same number as you can reasonably draw. No doubt, though, gerrymandering is linked. The New York Times in 1965 wrote this editorial where they referred to the twin evils of malapportionment and gerrymandering. And, and one of the things I like to point out is that at the time, in the late 50s, 60s, you know, the, the lawyers for plaintiffs and the Supreme Court, they weren't naive about gerrymandering. They understood that gerrymandering was an issue. But malapportionment was seen as being the far greater obstacle to democratic government. So once malapportionment is taken care of, then gerrymandering, of course, which had been around for a long time, becomes ever more important. So, you know, you, now you have to draw districts that don't make any sense in order to get the result that you want. Whereas before, you could just lump 10,000 people into one district and 100,000 into another. You didn't have to draw funny shapes. Right. When the New York Times discussed the twin evils of malapportionment and gerrymandering, should they really have talked about triplets with the third child being the Electoral College? Well, that's a great question and obviously one that is especially prevalent today. The New York Times did not, but just a couple years before that, and I think in January of 1961, uh, Edward R. Morrow on CBS did a, a, an hour-long special called The Election Day Illusions. They spent 30 minutes talking about malapportionment and 30 minutes talking about the Electoral College. Certainly, there was a sense wow. that you know these were two entities which stood in the way of true democracy. Now, of course, the one place, and this is an important one, where the Electoral College is different from malapportionment or gerrymandering is that the Electoral College is specifically written into the Constitution. And no matter how you feel about it, you can't yes. get around the fact that that is very clear. Doug, you've told such a compelling story, but could you step back and just explain to us what the greater significance of these legal cases is? You know, Earl Warren always, at the end of his very distinguished career, Chief Justice, Supreme Court Chief Justice Earl Warren, who presided over the court from 1953 to 1969. 
He always said that the, the reapportionment decisions were the most important of his career. Most people expected him to say Brown versus Board of Education. And he said, no, even more than Brown, even more than any of the, of the other major cases that they handed out, that the reapportionment cases were the most important because at their root, they addressed fundamental issues of democracy. Who is going to participate in our democracy? How much is each person's vote going to count? Right. How many, does my vote count once and yours count 10 times? At its most fundamental basic level, malapportionment and correcting malapportionment was about asserting a principle of majority rule in which every person has an equal vote. Doug, thanks for joining us on Backstory today. My pleasure. Doug Smith is the author of On Democracy's Doorstep, the inside story of how the Supreme Court brought one person, one vote to the United States. That's going to do it for us today, but you can keep the conversation going online. Let us know what you thought of the episode or ask us your burning questions about history. You'll find us at BackstoryRadio.org or send an email to Backstory at Virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook, Tumblr, and Twitter at Backstory Radio. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. This episode of Backstory was produced by Andrew Parsons, Bridget McCarthy, Nina Ernest, Emily Gaddick, and Ramona Martinez. Jamal Milner is our technical director, Diana Williams is our digital editor, and Melissa Gismondi and Joey Thompson are our researchers. Additional help came from Robin Blue, Anjali Bishash, Sequoia Carrillo, Emma Gregg, Courtney Spagna, and Aaron Teeling. Our theme song was written by Nick Thorburn. Other music in this episode came from Ketza, Poddington Bear, and Jazar. And thanks, as always, to the Johns Hopkins Studios in Baltimore. This week, we say goodbye to our interns, Robin Blue and Courtney Spagna. Best of luck in all of your future endeavors, guys. Backstory is produced at the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Provost's Office at the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations. Brian Vallow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia and the Dorothy Compton Professor at the Miller Center of Public Affairs. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus at the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Windham for the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities.